On this week's episode, we speak to Matt Taibbi and Katrina Vandenhuvel. And to hear my full chat with Katrina Vandenhuvel, which is really excellent, during which we talk about neo-McCarthyism and the intolerance of dissident voices, especially when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, please become Patreon members at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to Useful Idiots. So excited to be here with Matt Taibbi, who barely needs an introduction. Matt Taibbi of Useful Idiots fame. You may know him for some other things. A couple of award-winning books. I Can't Breathe about Eric Garner. And you can find all of his stuff at TK Media on Substack, because he's one of these evil Substack nefarious types. Welcome, Matt. Yeah. Oh, I'm the original idiot, right? Yeah. Yeah. You and, you, you and I are the original Useful Idiots. We are the original useful idiots. Yeah, we were idioting it before it was cool. Usefully original. Usefully original. Yeah. Uselessly unoriginal, perhaps. But this isn't useful idiots. This is the Katie Helper show, right? Yeah, this is the Katie Helper show. Yeah, and people probably know Matt's been on sabbatical. Aaron Mate has been doing as good a job as possible. We love Aaron, but Tybee is, of course, irreplaceable. And how is your book going? Everyone wants to know. It's good. I'm a little behind. I'll have to be All honest, right. you know, but uh, it's it's been it's 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 been fun. Normally, I'd be traveling a lot, right? But with the Omicron thing, it's just it got a little confusing. But it's gonna come out of that soon. How about you? How, how have you been doing? Good. Things are good. Yeah. I miss you, honestly. Yeah. I know. I miss you too. I know. This is a little reunion. We're gonna have to have another yeah, one. I'm We're gonna have feeling for clumped. I know, right? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Play the Yentl soundtrack. <laughs> Look, you're you're wiping your nose. You're trying not to trying to keep it together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you're welcome back anytime. Happy to anytime. Yep. Awesome. So we wanted to have you on, and then we're going to be bringing on Katrina Vandenhuvel, who everyone here knows too, and is just so excited about from the Nation. She's also written several books and a real expert when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. So we're very excited to have her joining shortly as well. With whom I go back a long way too, by the way, yes. with Russia. So Right. You, Katrina, Putin, you'd all hang out together <laughs> and plan to take over the world or something. We used, to, we used to meet in the Arbat once a year. Yeah. So wanted to ask you, what has happened? Can you tell people what has happened with Russia, Ukraine? I know it's an overwhelming question, but basically a summary of what has happened and also a summary of what the media has said has happened and the difference between those two things. So it's a little confusing because so that they went it Putin obviously went into the to the Crimea back when Obama was president and essentially took it. So this is this is the the part of the world in, in, in the Black Sea where we had wars fought over in the 1800s, where Yalta is, sort of traditional Russian resort of the upper classes once upon a time has always been associated with with russia and then there are these two other regions 
that are sort of predominantly ethnically Russian, linguistically Russian, and there's been fighting and discord in these areas for some time. And we're talking about places like Donetsk, Luhansk, and it's a, it's a stretch of eastern Ukraine that's sort of on the very edge of the country, and the 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 bottom of it is at the Sea of Azov. And it's been kind of in dispute for some time now because there's been fighting in these regions between separatists and Ukrainian government, and Putin essentially just recognized these these two territories. And the United States has chosen to call that an invasion. And I don't think that's completely irrational. It's a little bit different than what they were saying was going to happen. And it's not clear that that's, this is the end of the story either. But so there's going to be some sanctions. They're, they're pretty mild, I would have to say, all things considered. They're seizing some personal property. They're talking about going after Putin's assets, but they'll never be able to find it, you know, even the, large, the smallest part of it. Just to give you an example of how unserious the sanctions are in Britain, they're not sanctioning Roman Abramovich, who's one of the biggest oligarchs in in Russia, but he owns the Chelsea football team. It would be kind of an inconvenience to sanction him. So they, they left him out. They sanctioned three people. So, so far, there's no real pushback. Now, this has had a major impact on the financial markets, which have plummeted a little bit because I think there are fears that this is going to disrupt the energy markets in particular. There's probably a lot of Europeans who are unhappy because this is going to interrupt the pipeline deal for cheap Russian energy into Germany. So it's interesting. They've obviously screwed up completely how they've described it. I mean, I saw a Washington Post reporter the other day, (laughs) Isabel Kershudian, I think is her name, who was saying... This Putin speech has nothing to do with NATO. There's like whole sections of the speech that he gave that were about NATO. So they're trying hard to stick to this line that it's this like crazy, and it is a little bit crazy, but it's like this this crazy Lebensraum style, we must get to the sea and seize Kiev kind of a thing. So far, it's not that. It could be, but it's not that yet. And how much do you think the way that the media was presenting reality shaped reality? Do you think this had an impact on what Putin chose to do? Yeah, well, I, I think I think it's a mixture of how the media and the United States diplomatic establishment chose to handle it because they didn't really take seriously the idea of negotiating, I don't think. I called this wrong. I didn't I didn't think he was going to do anything at all because what I thought was going to happen in the end was he was going to make a whole bunch of aggressive maneuvers and the United States was going to quietly send a back channel message that okay we're we're not going to try to bring Ukraine into NATO and then he would back off and really nothing would change. Right now nothing's really going to change unless he goes into more territories. But I thought that's what was going to happen. So but no they they were very belligerent instead they fed these stories about how they had, he had already decided to invade, and the only options that were discussed were these military options. And you know, I think that's played right into Putin's hands. He's probably taking some pleasure in the fact that the Europeans and the Americans are probably a little bit at cross purposes about what happened. You know, if they had done what Obama did, which is just quietly 
say, yeah, we don't really care, you know, <laughs> and let, let, just to do what you do. I, I think, I think everybody would have been happier on the European side, but, um, but no, they, they went this other route and I think it's a mistake to talk big if you're not going to do anything. So make Putin look good, you're saying. Right. Cause so, so they, they spent however long talking about, Oh my God, he's going to do this. He's going to do that. We have to do something. We have to do something. And if he does something, there's going to be, consequences and blah 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 and he just like gives a speech and walks into these you know enters these territories and uh, of course nothing happens uh, whereas it, what happened what obama did was much was much smarter like he he didn't risk any political cap- capital on this at all he recognized up front that the united states was not going to commit troops was not going to get into a military battle over what an area of the country of the world that was much more important to Putin than it is to us. We have no strategic interest in this area at all. Um, and you know, the, the, the history of this this region is very unsettled. So rather than do that, rather than just quietly say like, you know, we're going to let this one go or, um, or the alternative was, would be to go in there, you know, and actually put troops or something, you know, I, I don't think that would have been a good idea either, but what they did was the middle ground is they raised a ton of fuss and they said, you know, they saber rattled a lot and then they just did nothing. Right. So let's bring in Katrina, Katrina. I would love to hear what you have to say. And also I would love to hear you and Matt talk to each other as two, two Rus- Rusophiles or Russo experts. It's good to see Matt though, not on this evening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hired him at The Nation 25 years ago to do research for a piece called Harvard Boys Do Russia. And <laughs> the Wall Street Journal does Russia wrong. The editor of the Wall Street Journal called up and said, who are those two guys who wrote that piece? They got it right. So <laughs> I, I am with Matt. First of all, I too got it wrong. And I don't know what, you know, there, there has been a breach of territorial sovereignty. And, you know, the rules-based order, as we describe it, has been breached. Uh, one has to say that and then, you know, make the point that we've seen breaches before, whether it's Kosovo, Yugoslavia, Iraq, pretty ugly moments. Um, I think there's been an enormous amount of media malpractice, as we, you know, we would call it. The uh, media in this country was gunning for war. I mean, and then, you know, you had a fusion, it seemed, of the politics, the establishment, the blob in Washington and the mainstream media, I think Politico called war three times. We were going to have war Wednesday, Friday. It was like not to be glib, appointment viewing. And it was dangerous. And if that was deterrence, it's not the kind of deterrence one wants with two nuclear powers. Um, But I do think it was interesting to see how diplomacy finally erupted. There was a flurry of diplomacy, which is an art form we've kind of given up on because our politics is so militarized. But, you know, Macron, who I've never admired except for his marital situation, was really, you know, shuttling around. And so was the new chancellor of Germany. And, you know, the new president of Ukraine, Zelensky, TV actor, came to power elected on a platform to bring peace. I don't think he's his own man. I think you have in Ukraine, you know, as you do in many countries, deep corruption, oligarchs, the right wing in Ukraine, the extremist right wing controls them. The sadness I feel is that the so-called Minsk Accord, which would have kind of given the east of Ukraine, which Matt was talking about, autonomy, language rights, 
if that could have been negotiated. It was Germany, France, Ukraine, and Russia. But I think it broke down. Uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was in Munich at the security conference last week, and he kind of gave a statement of war. And, you know, we've demonized Russia so much. Maybe I have no brief for Putin, but we've demonized Russia to the point where we don't think it has a politics. And there was the Security Council meeting, not to get too serious, where there were three or four people, and one spoke for diplomacy, the other spoke for staying put, and the, the other was a representative from one of these autonomous you know, republics. Let's go in. And so I think the danger now is to not to try to return to diplomacy and not let you know the Russian forces move into Ukraine. There is hysteria tonight in some of the media about Russia's going to annex Ukraine. I mean, this is a big country. To try and return to some kind of diplomacy, if possible, because there was a deal on offer. I think Matt followed this, you know, the autonomy to, to postpone NATO, the original sin. Uh, Ukraine couldn't have joined anywhere anyway because of territorial integrity and the economy, but postpone any Ukraine membership in NATO for 10, 15 years, et cetera. But I think that's off the table right now. And so what happens is hawks ascendant in both countries. And, you know, Biden and the blob are going to, and the media, which is part of it, is with no alternative point of view, which Matt knows is the case. I mean, I'm not talking about everyone should be Matt Taibbi, but not everyone should be Michael McFall, the former ambassador. I mean, he rules the airwaves. We need some, you know, openness to alternative views, which we call out other countries for not having. Yeah, and, and yeah, uh, Katrina, I think you're you're completely right. They had a window for to kind of talk this out. Yeah, and they they created conditions in, in which it's basically impossible to really talk. That's um, right. And and now that this has happened, uh, it's going to be very difficult to go back and and say, well, okay, let's let's come to a sensible solution. Like, I know, I, 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 I don't, I don't think that, that they can go back there. I don't think they, they can go back, but I do think you like, you know, they've compartmentalized security agreements during other cold wars. You could do a deal on like the international nuclear for, you know, INF or the conventional forces in Europe and try to carve out something like that. Uh, but it's going to be tough. And I, I really feel that we've entered this, it's not just US, Ukraine, Russia, it's this kind of new world, which we, it's not to sound too Italian communist, but the old order is dying and the new one has not yet appeared. But in it, you can see the possibility of Russia and China being more transactionally united. You can see Europe, one would hope, be more independent. And there are lots of volatile conditions that have erupted. Yeah, I mean, Clearly, I think the, the the other shoe that everybody's worried about dropping here is some kind of like more overt alliance between Russia and China in the wake of this, and um, and that just that wouldn't be good for no. The, but the, the United States is, is has looked bad in this whole scenario, and and that that would make it even worse. I think. Though the you know the foreign minister, the Chinese foreign minister, gave a very explicit statement about supporting Russia's, you know, interest in security, not having NATO, but also said very clearly China supported Minsk, the Minsk agreement, which was a statement of diplomacy. And I think, you know, we've seen, by the way, it's 
the 50th anniversary of Nixon going to China, which I find quite fascinating because there was an attempt coming out of another Cold War to find a relationship. But this Biden administration, I think they're surprised by Russia because what was up was the Asia pivot, right, to China. So now they have that to look. I mean, I want to believe that our president next week will speak wisely at the State of the Union. Uh, And. I guess the speech today, Matt, you read it, you said the sanctions, the sanctions are the big story, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't sound too terribly draconian to me. I, I, I only kind of like took a first blush at it. Um, but the Putin dacha. They're going to yeah. seize the Putin dacha in, in Sochi. Yeah, I'm sure they're shaking in their <laughs> shoes about that. I mean, I mean. What you said about Abramovich is so true. Right? <laughs> yeah, they're going to. Roman Abramovich is probably the most famous, wealthiest oligarch. And, you know, the UK has been as tough as the United States in seeking. Uh, military posture with Russia, but I do, I do think on some level, the sanctions on the oligarchs might be helpful to Putin because they've tried for years in Russia to repatriate the wealth of the oligarchs, and that hasn't worked so well. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the original strategies of Putin, right? To, right mean, to put, bring back before yeah. he, you know, he created his own oligarchy, but he did. It's interesting. Unlike Ukraine, where they've never really tempered the oligarchs, there was a moment after Putin came to power where he took on Yeltsin's oligarchs. People still kind of are amazed that Putin's first act in power after he was selected was to give Yeltsin and his family immunity from corruption indictments. Mm -hmm. He stayed too long, and I think that's part of the Ukraine crisis. Yeah, well, they had to give him safe passage for all that money they stole from Aeroflot and, you know, the Maeve attacks and everything. And the, but um, no, this is, I think this is so far, it's kind of a it feels like kind of a wash to me because like the worst case scenario of troops going in all over the country and marching toward Kiev, like we're not seeing anything like that. But Matt, it may seem that way to you because you're a reasonable sort of person. Um, right. But. But I think, you know, when you have advisors, they say advisors and weapons, the U.S. is still sending whatever non-lethal defensive weapons. What that means, I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea. idea. I mean, the Germans sent helmets. And I think the Ukrainian forces said, well, maybe they should send pillows. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I think we're sending weapons. We're not sending troops into Ukraine, which is also a hypocrisy that no American man or woman should fight. But they say no way. And then you have you do have advisors, though, I think, to help with the U.S. weapons. So what if someone's on the front line and gets shot? I mean, these things. can. Oh, yeah. 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 No, they had they had they had uh, American advisors there years ago. That's I mean, right. I, I remember watching those videos of American military personnel training Ukrainian troops and thinking that's right. Like. The Russians have to be <laughs> extremely unhappy about this. I mean, it, it, I know just even allowing that kind of film out of the out oh. is is a provocation. I, I think Americans don't don't see it that way. But if we thought about it in terms of you know, if there were Russians in Baja, you I know, know doing Baja. military exercises, how like, about I, in uh, Williamsburg? Why Baja is very right. Nice. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the grave, the original sin, to a large extent, is NATO expansion, which, you know, the German reunification in 1990, Gorbachev 
never got a written agreement, which, by the way, interested me because there was all this talk of written agreements in this these last weeks. But NATO, he was promised, would not move one inch eastward. And there are archives and documents. In 2008, George W. Bush said, let's give fast track to Ukraine and Georgia. And as we sit here today, and Matt knows in the last few years, NATO's been up to Russia's borders. It moved far east. And it's not a coffee clutch. It's a military institution which was designed to counter the Warsaw Pact, which collapsed with the end of the Soviet Union. And by the way, there are lobbies in military weapons sales groups to lobby for NATO equipment because you need to be compatible with other NATO equipment. So it's not just a light thing. And you need to spend a certain amount. That's right. And Trump got in trouble because he had it all wrong. I mean, the point is, let's find another institution, not NATO. But he was going on about the money, right? Like the, the, he was being jipped personally. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, the, the NATO thing, um, I, I remember a few years ago, I interviewed um, Elvin Goodman, you know, the, the ex-CIA. Right, CIA. Yeah, yeah, who, um, and he had interviewed Shevard Nadze and James Baker, who were both at those talks um, about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And they both recalled um, the use of the word leapfrog, that the United States, the United States would not leapfrog a country in the direction of, uh, of the Soviet Union. So the whole, the whole idea was there was this overt promise not right. to bring NATO um, you know, beyond East Germany towards towards the Soviet Union or towards the former Soviet Union. The Russians see this as an enormous betrayal. I mean, I can't say that I had a ton of conversations about or, with ordinary Russians about this over the years, but they definitely feel like they were lied to about this. Yeah. And um, you, I, Americans also don't aren't really in tune with the kind of deep underlying um inferiority complex slash like paranoia that Russia has towards the West. This idea that the West doesn't really respect them and, right. and is always trying to get over on them. And, um, you know, they have some pretty ugly history. So they, this is a big deal to them. Oh, you're so right. And it was also the underreporting because there have been NATO provocations and you've had accidents and provocations in the Black Sea over these last years, which go unreported. And when there were archives about this NATO agreement and what you said about Baker and Shevardnadze, the National Security Archives, it's a good group in Washington, released these primary documents, didn't get a single story in one of the newspapers. I mean, I don't, as Matt says, I don't think, first, I think in Russia, across the spectrum, political spectrum, westernizers, nationalists have opposed NATO expansion, like Yeltsin did. Um, and but what our policies have done toward Russia is undercut the kind of pro-American grouping. There is, there's really no one, maybe Lavrov, the foreign minister, because he's a diplomat. But otherwise, it's really very sparse now due to... Right, yeah. Who, who said it? Reagan says it took two. Did Reagan say it takes two to tango? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember. Someone's, I mean, I always love trust, but verify. I live my life that way. But no, That was a lot I, of bomb hits ago. I can't remember, but... Um... But yeah, no, it, it's maybe this is a little bit of all of that coming back to haunt us a little bit. Who knows? Well, I think Putin wanted it to be raised. And for the first time, think about it. When was the last time you heard NATO or NATO expansion on TV? A lot, right? I mean, it was talked about. It might have been mistalked about, but it was. 
And the Europeans do, they talk about it more than we do. Yeah. And they probably talk about it. I mean, if, if there's a diplomatic end here, I think for, for Putin, it's to try to wedge Germany and some of those other countries sort of out of our orbit. I agree with you, Matt. And the, But the media often has a key on its computer, like much of the media, which is, you know, destabilizing the Western alliance. Right. Well, I think there was another security architecture on offer in 1990. And the one thing, again, I like about Macron is he has he, he's channeling his inner de Gaulle. I mean, de Gaulle, I didn't know this history very well, but in 1966, de Gaulle was so pissed off at the Americans for not sharing a nuclear code with nuclear weapons stationed in France's territory that he told them to go to Brussels. They were based in Paris. So he was very much the kind of, you know, France for us and wasn't willing to take all this U.S. lecturing, which is not, in my mind, an necessarily bad thing if it leads to respect for diplomacy. Yeah, and especially with the United States clearly not knowing what it's doing right now. I mean, every time Biden opens his mouth, he contradicts what he said five minutes ago. You know, like we're, I don't and know. He, but he knows Ukraine, and I'm not talking about his son, but he once said that he spent more time on the phone with the chocolate oligarch President Poroshenko than he did with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> he did in order to like get across how well he knew Ukraine. <laughs> Or jail. Or lucky jail, yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's an amazing God. story. I got to go back to play daddy. Okay, but, yeah, uh, thanks. Good luck. Candy, it was great to see you. Yeah, great you to see too. You as well. thank, uh, and, and thanks so much for having me on. And, yes, uh, thank you. So glad you guys got sure, to man. talk. Yeah. All right. Take care. Bye, Matt. That was great. And to hear the rest of my chat with Katrina Vanden Heuvel, please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll also want to become Patreon members because I'm also going to be bringing you an excellent interview I'm doing with Yasha Levine, who is an actual Ukrainian. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.